All right, so we're continuing in our series through Nehemiah, and we've come to chapter 9. So I want you to think with me here. Have you ever been surprised at the accumulation of stuff in your life, in your house? Anybody? So perhaps maybe you went to the basement to get your Christmas decorations, and you're like, what is all this stuff? Like, how did, ugh, where you you know, some storage area if you don't have a basement or whatever. Why are we keeping all this stuff? Just accumulates easily over time. Parents have to deal with this with toys, right? With little kids. Um, even if you're not a particularly indulgent parent, if, it, if you've got grandparents, you know, who like to give gifts, it's so easy to end up with way more toys than they could ever play with. Accumulated junk. Maybe it's your clothes. I do one main shopping trip per year whether it's at Thanksgiving or Christmas when we go out to Chicago because there's a couple great resale shops and I, I made out like a bandit, you know, a couple weeks ago, Thanksgiving, and usually covers me through the year. And so came back from that and like went through all my stuff and pulled a whole kitchen garbage bag of clothes. Like, what am I keeping this stuff for? Just accumulation. Stuff weighs us down. Well, think of the accumulation of sin and guilt and all of its destructive effects in our lives. Think of it over the course of this past week. This past month. This past year. Think of the accumulation of sin over the course of your life. I mean, really, start to, maybe this will help, because I think it's easy to just like, yeah, 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 okay. Let's say you live to be 75. Some of you here have already done that, which is great. Let's say you just have one lustful thought per day from ages 10 to 75, which is probably unfair on both ends, a little too conservative. That's like 24,000 in your lifetime. One a day. Let's say you're ungrateful and grumble two times a day. From two to 75. I went a little lower with that one. It's over 50,000 times. Just twice a day. Again, I'm being pretty conservative, at least by my own life's standards. Let's say you're prideful, which also includes self-pity for what it's worth, because self-pity is wounded pride. I deserve better than this. Look at how I'm suffering. And let's say you just do that three times a day. I can't remember the age range that I calculated, and it's not in my notes. So whatever it was, similar to the previous, 78,000-ish. Let's say you're sinfully angry or irritable four times a day from 2 to 75, over 100,000 times. Let's say you place someone or something before God in your heart, failing to love him with all your heart five times a day from 10 to 75. Like 120,000. So that's just a few categories. That's like around 400,000 sins. Again, I'm not trying to be Mr. Bean Counter up here. I'm just trying to make it more concrete. Isn't it so easy for us to think lightly of our sin? 
you're, you know, you're busy and you're just kind of like plugging through life and whatever. When was the last time you mourned over sin? I didn't even mention covetousness or bitterness or an unforgiving heart or a judgmental spirit or gossip or slander. You know, I hit some sins of commission, but didn't really mention much under the heading of sins of omission. All the things you didn't do that you should have done, that I didn't do that I should have done. All, think of all the failures to love. Think of how often we shrink back from need out there in order to save our life and our time and our comfort. And that's just your life. Think of it over the course of your family's life, over everybody in this room. <laughs> like Psalm 133 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So think about the accumulation of sin in your life. What? Does God, holy, 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 can't even look on evil, white, hot, holy. What does he think of all this? How does God respond to all of that in your life, in my life? Massively important questions. And Nehemiah 9 has such incredibly important, both sobering and so encouraging answers to these questions. So, little super brief review. Remember, the people of God have been exiled because of their sin to Babylon. Jerusalem was razed to the ground. R-A-Z, not, that would be R-A-I-S-E-D would be like raised to the ground. Raised, like burned to the ground, okay? People carted off. Just some peasants left. So, you know, Stones, rubble, time passes, the Lord raises up Cyrus, Persians actually beat up the Babylonians, they were in charge. So time passes, 70 years, and then God uses Cyrus to send people back and rebuild the temple. They start with the altar, Zerubbabel takes a group back, and then Ezra, they build the altar and then the temple but the wall is still in ruins, so there's no real protection, so the city's really not going to be repopulated, so it's really not going to be rebuilt, and the people need to be rebuilt as much as the stones. So Nehemiah hears of this. He's the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes at the time, and he goes back to build the wall. So chapters 1 through 6 focus on the rebuilding of the wall effort and threats and opposition to all of it. And then 7 to 12, focus on the rebuilding of the people. So that's where we've been the last couple weeks, is the rebuilding of the people. This was the ultimate purpose of the work, not just bricks and mortar. It was the people of God renewed and built up, the city of God built up and renewed. And so they've finished the wall, and they're starting to focus on the hard work that needs to happen to rebuild the people. They've read God's word and realized how they've neglected it, but they were in the seventh month, which is the time of festivals, and so last week we looked at how the joy of the Lord is your strength as you celebrate these feasts and festivals, the Day of Atonement and then the Feast of Booths. 
They had started to weep and mourn because of their sin and neglect, but they had to put that on hold so that they could be faithful to the, the um, festivals of the month. But now it's time to finish that unfinished business of dealing with their sin. So that's what's happening here. Okay? That's what's going on. This unfinished business of dealing with their sin has come front and center. So one commentator, Hamilton, says this, the events of the festival of booths, which has just, continued, or just complete, been completed, continue to the 22nd day of the seventh month. Then the eighth day of the festival of booths is another holy convocation, solemn assembly, that would be the 23rd day of the month. And now in Nehemiah 9.1, we arrive at the 24th day of the month. So they have completed the festivals, and now they are here on the 24th day to finish what they started when the law was read on the first day, and they began to weep and mourn in response to it. So this is that unfinished business to attend to. Confession, repentance, fasting, mourning their sin. They also separate themselves from all foreigners. What's that all about? Well, these are Israelites about to confess the sins of their fathers, They're also going to confess their own sins, their unfaithfulness as the people of God. So it's only natural that the foreigners not join them for this, as this is not their history that's going to be rehearsed, right? So this is a time of contrition, consecration as the people of God, separating from the foreigners here was actually an expression of devotion, not arrogance or superiority. So they have this six-hour church service, okay? They read the Bible for three hours, probably had some explanation with it, just like we looked at last week, and then three hours of confession and worship. So the Levitical leaders are leading this. They're calling the people to worship God, to bless his glorious name, to confess their sins, the sins of their fathers and their own sins. So verses 6 to 37 is confession in both senses. It's confession of sin and its confession of God's greatness and mercy, acknowledging that, praising the God of mercy and greatness. So stop and think for a second, why are they doing this? Well, because they're worshiping God. They're remembering who he is and what he's done. They're remembering also who they are, their identity as the people of God, and what the people of God have done over and over again in history. They're remembering God. They're remembering their own history. It's why they ended up in exile. It's why they're in distress under foreign powers. Even at the time of Nehemiah, they're still under the thumb of Persia, even if it was, you know, gentler than the thumb of Babylon. So they're being honest with themselves and with God about their past. They're rehearsing God's past mercy and grace and faithfulness. Because, here's why, because they need his mercy now. That's ultimately where it goes to. You see, toward the end, if you look at verse 32, now therefore, and we'll get to that. But just so you see the big picture here, they need his mercy now. They're asking for his help on the basis of his character, which they rehearse as they look back at Israel's history. His character has been proven over time, generation after generation. And so we are a part of the same story. And so we look back. This is actually our history. If we are a part of the people of God by his grace, because of Jesus, 
kind of being grafted in. This is our history. And we learn not only about the nature of the fallen human heart and how prone we are to wander, but we also learn about the faithfulness of God and how willing and ready he is to forgive and restore and rescue and save. So we can do that. We can do that this morning because of his track record. So this kind of rehearsal, this confession of sin and confession of God's greatness and goodness and faithfulness is so good for the people of God. And Nehemiah 9 is like this amazing summary of the storyline of the Old Testament. But isn't it kind of sad and discouraging in some ways, the cycles of give and take, not really give and take, but give and forsake, right? God keeps giving, and they keep taking and then forsaking. So it honors and blesses God for all he's done, but it also acknowledges and mourns all that we have done against his grace and mercy. So point number two, confession and confession, cycles of give and forsake. So I'm sure you noticed those, the repetition of the cycles. You could probably summarize it a couple different ways. Rebellion, discipline, outcry, rescue. Or actually there's blessing first, right? And then there's rebellion, and then outcry and rescue. Or in another case, it's rest. They, God gives them rest from enemies. Evil, they grow comfortable and turn away. God gives them up, and they, out, they cry out in their distress. He delivers them, <laughs> and you start it again. There's a warning, there's presumption, there's disobedience, there's stubborn rebellion. Anyway, it's just over and over again. So God is constantly giving gracious provision and blessing and mercy and rest, and his people are constantly responding with rebellion and evil and stubbornness and presumption, disobedience, sticking their fingers in the ear, their ears, when he speaks to them and warns them through the prophets. Derek Kidner summarized it well when he writes, they lacked nothing and appreciated nothing. So God has to judge them and give them up to the consequences of their actions. He's got to discipline them. And they end up suffering and in distress and given up to rebellious course and enslaved to their enemies. Then they cry out for mercy. God rescues and delivers again. He raises up saviors and saves them again. So what do we learn here? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? Okay, let's just look at the chapter through that lens, I guess bifocal lens. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? Well, first off, it starts with creation. You see it there in verse 6. You are Yahweh, the self-existent one. You are who you are. I am who I am. You alone you are the only God. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them, preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. I love what James Hamilton writes in his commentary. He said, Praising God begins with acknowledging that he alone deserves credit for this fantastic world. This world is stunning. This just caught me. I, I, I never have looked at leaves this way, and probably for many of you, this is going to be helpful and very applicable. There are leaves that fall every year that are more beautiful than anything that humans could produce or engineer on our own, and we treat them like trash. I, I, I like loathe when leaf time comes, you know? 
because it's such a hassle. But this is like miraculous and glorious. Have you ever just stopped and wondered at God's creative design in a leaf and the colors? And we look at them like they're a bother. And those trees appear to die. And then they come back to life. Like, it's so easy to just walk through life blind to the miraculous all around us, all the wonder and glory. I, I love this. It, and that's just one little piece of this word. I love this. My son had a tooth fall out, and a new truth grew in that gap. Like, don't you need sometimes some people to help open your eyes to the wonders all around us? We, yeah, that happens. You're like, shoot, I've got to put a dollar in under his pillow, you know? And it's like, that's crazy. There's like magic everywhere. God's magic. We just need eyes to see it. And if we have eyes to see it, we will stand up and bless his glorious name for his might and his creativity. But we're, you know, like digging through like earthworms, you know, with... So stand up and bless Yahweh, your God, like bird sounds. There's so many different songs, but you can identify them. Like God designed all that. Dog noses. See, I'm a dog owner now. I'm going to get these like dog illustrations in. They're like dog noses are like 100 times better than humans. Bloodhounds, perhaps 300 times better. I know that measuring this is probably a little bit suspect. Like how exactly did they do that? Bear noses, did you know this, are seven times better than bloodhounds. Do some math. 300 times seven is 2,100 times better than your nose, which is why they can smell a dead carcass like miles away and make a beeline for it. That's just a bear nose. When was the last time you thought about bear noses? How many things are there out there that you could be thinking about? Like, Maybe you need to resubscribe to Ranger Rick. Is that still out there? Like, so for the glory of God. This world is miraculous because of God. So that's just a little sampling. We could go on all day, couldn't we? And we need to. Like, God, open our eyes to see your glory in the created world. And then we'll stand up and bless Yahweh, our God. He alone is the creator, our creator. And then it goes on. The Levites move from creation to covenant. The first covenant with Abraham. We see a key word there in verse 8. To give. That word shows up 19 times in this chapter. God's always giving. Sometimes he has to give his people up to their rebellion, but most often it's blessing them, giving to them, providing for them. And again, we could spend lots of time unpacking each of these, like the nature of the covenant with Abraham. Go back to Genesis 15. Do you know why the smoking pot went through between the pieces? Like, what is that? Cut some animals in half and lay them out, and there's this like smoking pot in the middle of the night. That got, what in the world's going on? Well, in ancient Near East, when you cut a covenant, sometimes you would cut the animal, and both parties would walk through the pieces because that's saying, if we violate this covenant, if we break our end of the deal, may we be like these animals, torn 
asunder. Judgment. And who walked through those pieces? God and Abraham? Just God. I'm making an oath unilaterally here. I'm going to be faithful no matter what. That's awesome. Stand up and bless the name of Yahweh for his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy. Then in verse 9, on to the Exodus. So in verse 10, you perform signs and wonders. It's actually gave, literally, in Hebrew. So God gave signs and wonders. He's showing his glory. He's showing his superiority to the gods of the nations, the false gods. Verse 13, he gave the law. And what is his law? It's not supposed to be burdensome and horrible and restrictive and oppressive. It's right and true and good. Think about the the governments of this world through time, so many of them abusive and, and coercive and controlling. Our God's laws are good and right and true. He gave them the Sabbath. He gave them bread from heaven and water from the rock. And then on to the promised land. So through the exodus into the promised land, he gave them the land that he had sworn to give. Land flowing with milk and honey. It's like dessert. <laughs> like ancient Near Eastern way of saying, you know, the best stuff. So if we see his faithfulness, his power in the exodus and sustaining his people through the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land, we stand up and bless Yahweh, the God of exodus, deliverance, and the God who brings his people all the way home. But, verse 16, again, just read through this again slowly this afternoon. God does this but. God does this but. The cycles are powerful, they're sobering, they're maybe discouraging, but they're also wonderfully encouraging because of how God is revealing who he is. 16 to 18, but they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed, literally gave, among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Remember, they're like, we had like three square meals, you know? Let's go back to Egypt. Like, wait, you were slaves. Remember the, the spies came back and said, ah, we can't go in there. It was better in Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. So they made this golden calf. They stiffened their neck just like the golden calf. Do you know we, we become like what we worship? Have you ever seen that? Psalm 115, Psalm 135. We become like what we worship. So if you worship a false god like a golden calf, you become just as spiritually blind, deaf, and dull as that false god. So what was that golden calf like? Stiff neck, you know? Stubborn. Calves are stubborn. Stubborn. So that's what's going on here spiritually they become just like their idol, their false god. But look at what this reveals. So it's sobering. Like we need to be careful with idolatry. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 21. But look at what this reveals of the character of God. Exodus 34 comes after Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is the golden calf event. And God could have certainly just wiped out the people. In fact, he said he was going to, but he knew that he had already raised up a mediator 
Don't wipe them out, Lord. Moses is mediating just like Christ would ultimately mediate for our sins. We deserve to be wiped out, but Jesus stood in the gap and mediated for us. Moses says, show me your glory. And what, do, what does he see? What does Moses see? Well, actually God says, you can't see me and live. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to declare my name to you. I'm going to reveal my glory by telling you what I'm like. So Yahweh passed before Moses, Exodus 34, 6, and proclaimed Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which is echoed here in Nehemiah 9, 17. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. So let's stand up and bless Yahweh. I mean, in our hearts, I know you don't have to stand up right now. Our God is a God ready to forgive. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, don't you need to rehearse that? Isn't it good to sing of our great God, our merciful God, and be reminded so that we worship him? More giving in 920, you gave your good spirit. You gave them water for their thirst and manna for their hunger. They lack nothing in the wilderness. So let's stand up and bless Yahweh, our shepherd. With him as our shepherd, we shall not want. Right? Promises made, promises kept. He said, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars of the heavens. Abraham, Abram. And he promised and he gave what he promised. The people were multiplied. He promised them land. He gave them the promised land. Promises made, promises kept. We stand up, bless Yahweh, the promise keeper. But these blessings, because of our fugitive hearts, end up becoming a curse so many times. Look at verses 25 and 26. They captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of the houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness and lived happily ever after. No. They were disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. We can't, like, same thing happens a little bit later. You gave them saviors, 27, who saved them from the hand of their enemies, but after they had rest, they did evil again. Like, our hearts are so fugitive that we can't even handle rest we take advantage of it we take advantage of God so again it's crazy verse 28 yet when they turned and cried to you you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies it's just crazy how long-suffering and forbearing and patient and merciful and gracious God is so this chapter is this powerful summary of the storyline of the Old Testament. It's the story of God's glory. It's also the story of our shame. We are not very good at being human. We are amazing beings made in God's image, but we can also be an absolute dumpster fire of sin and self-destructiveness, can't we? Like we shoot ourselves in the foot of our soul all the time. S-O-U-L. Sorry, not like S-O-L-E. 
Like just one example here. We are made to be addicts, you know, because we're made for God. But man, that goes haywire. So we have a longing that ultimately only God can fill, but he's given us good gifts as well that we can enjoy. But when we try to take things, good things, and certainly twisted things, and try to stuff them in there to fill up that longing that only God and properly enjoyed good gifts can satisfy, it never works. So whenever we look to something to meet the longings that only God can satisfy, we serve an idol. Idols promise satisfaction, refuge, comfort, help, freedom, pleasure, security. They always end up breaking the promise. So what we thought would serve us if we served it ends up mastering us and dominating us. This can happen with food, can happen with alcohol, can happen with drugs, can happen with sex, it can happen with all kinds of things, right? Gambling. So, as a result of that brokenness, distress, trouble, and anxiety and fear increase. What really causes idolatry and addiction to sink its claws into us is when we try to quiet and medicate the distress by the very thing that caused the distress. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's only reasonable, common sense, that if you try to cure your trouble with the thing that brought the trouble, you're really asking for trouble. But sin is deceitful, isn't it? It makes us crazy, do crazy things. So deep down you know that that thing is not good for you, but you love it, and so you continue to self-medicate and do violence to yourself. Which is why people who have deep idols, strong addiction, both love and hate what they're addicted to. So listen to Cornelius Plantinga. It's a really insightful thing. He says, These pleasure-seeking behaviors once indulged leave the addict with a residue of despair. Predictably, what traps him, what converts him from a mere delinquent into an addict is, is that he tries to relieve the despair by indulging his obsession all over again, thereby initiating a new round of addiction. When her attempts at self-management fail, as they usually do, and when her self-esteem plummets, as it always does, the addict feels compelled to seek solace in her obsessive behavior and thus cycles down one more level. In this way, addiction flourish, flourishes by feeding on human attempts to master them. Do you see cycles of destruction? So there's cycles of destruction in Nehemiah 9, big kind of national lever among the people of God. There can be cycles of destruction in our own lives. So do you know, do you realize, do you feel, are you in touch with the sinfulness of sin? Nehemiah 9 helps us kind of get in touch with how prone we are to wander. It's easy to get dull and dismissive about our sin, isn't it? dangerous. So this chapter is a cautionary tale, but it's also a fountain of hope. Like, do you see the greatness of God's mercy in these verses? It's just all over the place. Verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 19. They'd committed great blasphemies, and you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 27. 
They cried out to you, you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them, like judges, um, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28, after they, did, after they had rest, they did evil again, yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and delivered them according to your mercies. Again in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So Israel's history of disobedience is depressing, and ours is too. But it's also encouraging because it draws out and shows us God's glory, his great mercy. So we stand up and bless Yahweh's name because of his mercy and his grace. Well, finally, this review of Old Testament history ends with bringing it to their present day, like I said before, verses 32 to 37. So despite, you know, rebuilt temple and wall, Jerusalem's like a ghost town. Not a ton of willing volunteers to move in. We'll see that next week. They're surrounded by enemies and threats. There's a famine. There's poverty. There's heavy tax and tribute to Persia. So they feel so small and insignificant and vulnerable. And so they say, Lord, please, would you mercifully deliver your people again? You are great. You are mighty. You are awesome. You're the God of the covenant. So the purpose of this section is for the reader to see all of this smallness and threat and vulnerability in the light of who God is, in the light of his greatness. Look at it there. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, see our suffering and act again. May our suffering, though oftentimes self-inflicted, not be small in your eyes. Please be merciful again. Okay, so what does this all mean for us? Point number three. Not applying the Bible to our lives, but applying our lives to the Bible. What do I mean by that? Well, look at this quote by Christopher Wright, Old Testament scholar. He says, Many Christians are simply living in the world's story and trying to make the Bible relevant to that. Applying the Bible to our lives is understandable and it's fine. Language, we know what we mean. But this is a helpful perspective. Many Christians are simply living in the world story and trying to make the Bible relevant to that. We should not merely seek to apply the Bible to our lives as if our lives were the center of reality, but rather apply our lives to the truth and story of the Bible. We have lost the plot, the biblical plot. We have forgotten the story we are supposed to be in. We are living in the Bible's story, in God's story. So listen, we don't just find some takeaways, some bits of advice, you know, to take with us this week. This is the story of the world, which is the story of God's glory. This is a story that we live in, not just them. It's a story we live in, God's story. He's the author. Like This world's created on purpose, and the author is no aloof monarch He's no mechanical designer who just wound up the world and then just let it go, and he's off in some distant nebula. How good is it to know that ultimate reality behind all of this is this God who is crazy rich in mercy? So as the story goes on, after this summary of the Old Testament, the story goes on, right? after Nehemiah, after Malachi. 
the story of his glory continues to be the story of our shame as well, right? But Advent is the story of his glory taking on flesh so that he could take on our shame. So we see the shame of the people of God and we see the glory of God and that story continues. If you want to see the glory of God, look at his son coming, taking on our flesh and blood. Think about it. He willingly lived under the cloud of being an illegitimate son his whole life. Despised the shame out of love for us. He took that shame on himself, on the cross, so that we could be honored and invited, reconciled, invited into the love and acceptance and belonging of the Father. So this is our story. The story continues. There is a warning, yes. This is not just a history lesson. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're prone to wander, Lord. We feel it. We need to take care, lest there be in any of us a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But there is also hope here. There's always hope in God's story. This is not just history. This is the God with whom we have to do. And who is this God? He is the Father of mercies. He's rich in mercy. Mercy is his glory, and it is his delight. Okay, so back in, I think, summer of, 2000, or of last year, 2020, I quoted a number of times from this book, Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of God for Sinners and Sufferers. So I think I mentioned at one point how he points out, using the work of Thomas Goodwin, how judgment is part of God's strange work and mercy is his natural work. What does that mean? The Bible speaks of God being provoked to anger, but it nowhere says that he's provoked to mercy. He doesn't need to be provoked to mercy because mercy is at the core of who he is. It's his heart. His anger must be provoked. And certainly he's just and he's wrathful and all of that, but again, his mercy comes natu naturally, needs no provocation. So you might think, isn't it easy to think that God is spring-loaded to wrath and judgment and harshness? No, he's spring-loaded to mercy and compassion and grace. And if you don't believe me, listen to a couple verses. There's more along these lines, but Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief... He had to judge. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That's not his deepest heart. When he has to, he will. Or how about Hosea 11, 8 and 9? This is, this is God speaking. Rebellious unfaithful, whore-like Israel. He's a faithful husband, and the people of God have been like a harlot. And what does he say? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So two quotes from this book for a couple purposes. Um, one, because it's so good. Two, because there's copies out there for you if you want one. So 
Hold on about that. First, when God stoops to lavish goodness on his people, he does it with a certain naturalness reflective of the depths of who he is. For God to be merciful is for God to be God. Left to our own natural intuitions about God, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment his natural work. Rewiring our vision of God as we study the scripture, we see that judgment is his strange work and mercy his natural work. Another quote, perhaps looking at the evidence of your life, you do not know what to conclude except that this mercy of God in Christ has passed you up. You ever feel this way? If my life is any evidence of the mercy of God in Christ, you might think, I'm not impressed. To you, I say, this is Dane Ortland speaking to you, the evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his, his life mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, eternally in your place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to heaven, which none of us deserves. So I also, again, I mentioned the book, like Crossway was actually giving away copies. If you will help your church read this book and discuss it, we'll give you 200 copies. I think we took 150. So some of our community groups are using this. Ours is, Chris Elliott's is. Um, so maybe your community group should consider using this. There's a video portion as well if you want to use that. Um, if yours isn't, perhaps you just grab another brother or sister and read it, meet up for coffee, but make a plan to read it and not just alone so that you can discuss it and kind of work it down into your hearts and minds. So this is, for what it's worth, not a way to cover people on your Christmas list, and that's because Crossway gave these books, you know, with certain qualifications. We're trying to be faithful to that, to that. but if you have read this book, this book might be something you're giving away to people on your Christmas list because it's really good. So, the story of his glory. Who is the author of the story? We see his glorious character in, in Nehemiah 9. We see the people of God rehearsing his character along with their sins, and we hear them call out to him and say, do it again. Be merciful to us and deliver. Again, we need it. And isn't that what we do when we come to the table? So we're going to participate in the Lord's table here. And if you didn't have a chance to grab the elements on your way in, I think there's a table right here and there's two in the back. You can um, get up and go grab one if need be. So who participates in the Lord's table? This is a family meal. So if you are trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he saved you from your sins, then participate in this table and do so. Again, we proclaim his death until he comes. This is the story that we live in and what we're proclaiming, what we're rehearsing to remind ourselves, yes, of our sin. We need to be honest with God and maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to go and apologize to somebody, make a phone call. But we repent of our sins and we receive fresh mercy from the God who is rich in mercy. Exhibit A, the cross. So let's confess our sins, but don't just confess your sins. Remember and rehearse the story that you're living in. Don't forget where you are in the story and who is writing this story. To live in the story is to know, just like Richard Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in me.
To live in this story is to know that no matter what you did yesterday, no matter how many mercies you used up yesterday, there will be fresh mercy tomorrow morning. His mercies are new every morning because he's a self-replenishing supply. There is always hope. That's what it means to live in this story. So where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So if musicians want to come up as we prepare our hearts to participate in the table of the Lord, let's confess our sins. Let's be honest with ourselves and honest with God and repent. But let's also rehearse the mercies and the kindness and the goodness of God and ask him for fresh mercy and grace for our needs. Do it again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.